Paul Souders took his small boat to spend the summer sailing up the coast of Hudson Bay. He wanted to photograph polar bears in the wild in the Canadian Arctic, but there were a few surprises he hadn't banked on. It took a lot of looking. I mean, finding a white bear on an endless sea of white ice took a lot of patience and determination and hour after hour. For a more relaxing adventure, the countryside of Japan's island of Hokkaido is ideal for a bicycle tour. Mainly we're enjoying the beautiful scenery as we cycle over rolling hills that are covered with fields of flowers or crops. Almost looks like patchwork quilt. And if you're ever in Dublin on June 16th, look for Sweeney's Pharmacy. That's where they hold special readings of Ulysses for Bloomsday. It's a little gem in Dublin. It only holds about 20 people if they're all seated in there. But we sit people in there and we read James Joyce out aloud. Come along for all sorts of adventures in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Paul Souders really wanted to take some great photographs of polar bears in the wild. But away from the distractions of other photographers and tourists, that's what he wanted, but it meant he'd be away from where he could get help if he needed it. In just a bit, Paul shares what he encountered in the waters of Hudson Bay, where he captured a few brave images of the creature at the top of the food chain. A walk around Dublin, Ireland, with all its elegant Georgian architecture, shows you how the Irish capital was once second only to London in its importance to the former British Empire. This June 16th marks a centennial for one of Ireland's literary greats. We'll get a look at how Bloomsday has been traditionally observed by James Joyce fans on the streets of Dublin a little later in the hour. But let's start on the other side of the world, on the northernmost major island in Japan, Hokkaido. It lies off the eastern coast of Siberia, with mountains, hot springs, wildlife, and wildflowers. Some people call it the Alaska of Japan. Hokkaido is where Ruthie Kanegi was born and raised, and where she returns in non-pandemic years to take fellow bicyclists on a tour of the island. Ruthie joins us in an interview from our show archives to tell us about Japan's wild open spaces of Hokkaido, where your money goes a lot further than in busy Tokyo. Ruthie, thanks for being with us. Thank you. I think it's interesting that you mention Hokkaido is a lot like the Alaska of Japan. How so? Well, it was far off the beaten track until the late 1800s. Prior to that, the only people living in Hokkaido were the indigenous Ainu people. Hmm. Kind of similar to the history of the Pacific Northwest in the U.S., Japanese didn't come to Hokkaido until the late 1800s, and they were really pioneers. There were farmers who were clearing the land and establishing dairy farms and crop farms. Hmm and immigrants from the main island, Honshu and other places, who wanted a new opportunity. So it was really only settled by Japanese in the late 1800s and then the 1900s. Wow. So it, it's more than physically like Alaska. It's uh, demographically and historically like Alaska. Uh, yes. Because when you go to Honshu, the main island where you'll find Tokyo, it feels like the culture has been there for thousands of years. It's just so yes. established. Right. But when you venture north, that's like the Wild West or the Great Frontier, isn't it? Yes, and many Japanese who live in Honshu or the other islands further south have never been to Hokkaido. Hmm. And when they go for the first time, many of them remark, wow, this is like going to a foreign country. It really is different, the terrain. Mm -hmm. And because of the colder climate, until recently they didn't grow rice. They mainly grew crops like corn and wheat and barley and sugar beets and dairy farms. It's not your clichetic image of Japan, then. 
Yeah, it's different. It's really similar to the Pacific Northwest where I live now in Oregon. So you mentioned uh, the indigenous Ainu culture. We know what happens to our indigenous culture in the 19th century. How have the Ainu fared? This history is rather similar, and sadly, Ainu were discriminated against, and their subsistence economy was based on salmon fishing and hunting, Hmm. and that was banned. Private salmon fishing was banned by the Japanese government at one point. Oh, as an attack on on the viability of their economy? Yes, and also their language was forbidden, so they were not allowed to continue using their language if they went to school. But recently, there are efforts to revive some of their cultural practices and religions and also their language. Are they physically more like uh, Mongolians or people from Siberia? No, not like Mongolia. They're Mm -hmm. like indigenous people in other places like Mm -hmm. the Inuit or Eskimo. Okay. I think they're related to the indigenous peoples that came across the Bering Straits to North America. With their own language. Yes. I don't think there are any native speakers left anymore, Mm -hmm. but they have knowledge of the language and are trying to teach it and preserve it. If you were a tourist to Hokkaido and you wanted to learn about the Ainu, are there museums, are are there cultural sort of preserves where you, you might be able to learn about this culture? Yes. You could go to Ainu museums in Sapporo or Asahikawa, and there are several villages where Ainu people live still and You can go and see and learn how their life is and their textiles, their music, their dance, and so on. And they perform some shows for tourists who want to learn. Probably like Native Americans in our country. Yes. And uh, I suppose most tourists would have on their checklist of things to do rather than the indigenous. uh, I knew they would have uh, emphasis on the outdoors, skiing, hiking, enjoying the parks. What would we find there in that regard? Well, there's many natural hot springs throughout Japan but also beautiful caldera lakes. In Oregon, we have Crater Lake National Park. In Hokkaido, there are five caldera lakes. Hmm. So a caldera lake being the uh, remains of a volcano filled with water. A volcano that exploded and then water gathered in the crater and formed a lake. Hmm. And so, yeah, you can go hiking. You can enjoy being on the lakeside. Sometimes there are hot springs that come out of the ground right next to the lake, or you Mm. can dig in the sand and create your own hot spring bath. So scenic beauty is wonderful in Hokkaido. When I think hot springs, I think Kyushu at the other end of Japan. Right, but the whole island chain of Japan are volcanoes that came out of the sea. Oh, okay, so you've got got hot springs all over the place. Yes, there are over 100 active volcanoes in Japan. Many of them are steaming, and they're closely monitored to make sure... Yeah, when they're getting ready to erupt, that they know about it. And Hokkaido is just across the water from Russia. In fact, you mentioned there's some disputed islands between Hokkaido and Russia. Right. At the end of World War II, actually, after the World War II ended, Russia took over four islands to the east of Hokkaido. And the closest one is only a couple miles off the coast of eastern Hokkaido. And so it's still disputed. Japan would like to have them back. But it's, you know, politically difficult. Mm-hmm. I bet. But um, so you can literally see Russia from Hokkaido. So I grew up in eastern Hokkaido and grew up thinking of Russia as being east of Hokkaido because the islands were there, the four islands. Oh, there you go. Ruthie Kanegi is introducing us to Japan's northern island of Hokkaido right now on Travel with Rick Steves. It's an interview we recorded before the pandemic. Ruthie was born and raised in Japan and now lives in Pennsylvania. She's the author of the Moon Guidebook, Living Abroad in Japan. 
Ruthie also leads cycling tours of Hokkaido with japancycletours.com. We have a link to her Facebook page with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Ruthie, if you're going to be touring Hokkaido by bicycle, uh, describe what we'd experience because you've, uh, for years, taken groups around on bike. Does it lend itself in particular to biking? And what would be some of the highlights of of an itinerary? Well, Hokkaido is much less densely populated than the rest of Japan. The land area is about the size of Indiana, but there are only 5 million people. And one and a half million live in the capital city. So when you go to other areas of Hokkaido, it's really wide open. The roads are newer and paved and uh, wider and with wide shoulders. So it lends itself to cycling. And there's many beautiful lakes and mountains Mm. and farms. Recently, you have opportunities to visit farms and help make something, make a craft or make some food. That's being emphasized a lot more for tourists to give them some experiences. On my tour, we also participated in a traditional tea ceremony and option to try out wearing a kimono. And we visit an Ainu museum. We also visit some art museums. But mainly we're enjoying the beautiful scenery as we cycle Mm. over rolling hills that are covered with uh, fields of flowers or crops. Almost looks like patchwork quilt. If I'm going to Japan and uh, I want to get the great outdoors and enjoy that and a bike tour sounds like fun, but I'm also just enamored with uh, traditional Japanese culture. Much as Hokkaido is different, if you traveled in in Hokkaido, would you feel the Japanese cuisine and the and the Japanese sort of approach to life there? Or is it that much of an outlier that it would be feeling like a different country? Well, if you stay in a traditional inn or ryokan, you would still get the same experiences staying in a ryokan in another part of Japan. Uh-huh. The tatami room where you they lay out the ton comforters at night uh-huh. to sleep on and you take your shoes off and wear slippers. And you might be served your meal on a low table. Are you supposed to take a hot bath before you eat? That's considered a way to relax and get ready for a meal is to, yeah, take a hot spring bath. In my real con, I wanted to eat. And they looked Mm -hmm. at me like, you barbarian, you can't eat. Now you got to go soak (laughs) in the hot bath first. Yes. But I just want to eat. No, you got to go. So I realized I'm not going to win this one. So just go out there and enjoy the bath. And it turned out to be a really a delight, I would say. Yes. Any good Ryokan, you'd have a hot bath, wouldn't you? Yes. And especially for cyclists, if you've been biking all day and maybe it's either been hot and sweaty or maybe cold and rainy, a bath is something to look forward to when you arrive at your hotel. Yeah. And even some Western style hotels have large baths that are, you know, women and men are separate, but a big hot bath where you can splash the hot water all over and Sounds soak up nice. to your And I've had gym. some I've had some very nice uh conversations with Japanese people in the spas. Uh, just people seem to be relaxed and a little bit yes. more candid. I don't know what it is, but you know, people talk about stuff when they're naked in a lot of hot water. Yes, I write about that in my book, Living Abroad Japan, that being naked is a great equalizer because you have no idea what their status is or what they do in their daily life. You're all in the bath together. You really are. And it's something every American traveler should do is, is get naked with Japanese people in a hot bath. Right. And watch what they do and just do the same thing. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Ruthie Kanegi. Her book is The Moon Guide, Living Abroad Japan. Obviously, you just love teaching Japanese culture and you have a great sensitivity for it and and an experience there. In your work as a a guide taking your bike tours around Hokkaido, 
What's one teaching experience that you particularly enjoy? Let's just wrap up our conversation with a, a final sort of thought on the joy of teaching Americans the intricacies of Japanese culture that you can enjoy on the seat of a bicycle. Yes, well, I like to teach some greetings in Japanese so that people on my tour can greet people, and also phrases that you use at the beginning of the meal, itadakimasu, I will receive, and at the end of the meal, gochisousama, it was a feast, thank you. I feel that teaching those kind of phrases makes a good entry into Japanese culture. And also because it's so safe, you don't have to worry if you're alone or if you get lost. I don't think I've ever lost anybody on my bike tour. But if you do get lost, you can always find somebody to help you and they will probably take you to the destination. So it's very safe and you can relax and enjoy getting to know people and enjoying the culture. Ruthie Kanegi, when it comes to this quick little discussion we've had about uh, enjoying Hokkaido, Gochisousama? Gochisousama. It was a yes. feast. Arigato. Okay, thank you. Doitashimashite. We're walking the streets of Dublin for Bloomsday in just a bit. But first, it's a whole different world on the icy waters of Hudson Bay as a Seattle photographer goes in search of a rare close-up of polar bears in the wild. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Hola, me llamo Concepción. Vengo de Sevilla y viajo con Rick Steves. Hello, my name is Concepción. I come from Seville and I travel with Rick Steves. Soy Concepción de Sevilla y viajo con Rick Steves. Some men, when they turn 50, buy a sports car. But photographer Paul Souders had other plans. He wanted to spend a summer alone exploring the waters of Canada's Hudson Bay to reach the sea ice where polar bears live. He's been all over the world, even to the Antarctic to photograph penguins. But viewing the creature at the top of the food chain in their natural environment near the top of the world was something Paul had long wanted to do. So he bought a small motorboat, got lots of gear, and made plans to spend the summer in Canada. He tells the story of his adventure with stunning photographs from the trip in his book, Arctic Solitaire. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what he found as he sailed up Hudson Bay. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me in, Rick. So set the stage. Where exactly did you go and, and why? Well, I had wanted to photograph polar bears for years. I mean, they're just the iconic species of the North. Whenever you think of Arctic Canada or the North Pole, you think polar bears. There's a couple of ways you can see them, and it involves spending a lot of money and going to places and being surrounded by other photographers and tourists. I wanted to see if I could do it on my own. That was the trick for me. If I could walk out my front door, travel overland and alone and somehow make it up to the Arctic ice. So you bought a, a little boat and you sailed up Hudson Bay, but you've mentioned you're just not that much of a boater. I wasn't when I started. <laughs> I mean, this you know. Is, it sounds like a, uh, an adventure waiting to happen with not everything predictable. It was a disaster waiting to happen. <laughs> That's a nice way, to, better way to put it, yeah. I had actually bought the boat a couple years before that because I wanted to take it up to Alaska and at least learn the rope. So I went up to southeast Alaska and photographed humpback whales, went out past Kodiak Island to to take pictures of brown bears along the uh, Katmai yeah, National Park you coast. You had done some other photo travel, uh, photography Quite a travel. Bit. I cut my teeth a little bit in Alaska. But, but I had a sense that these others were with the teams of people or with guides, or these were solo? It was all solo. Oh, so yeah. all solo. So this was your thing, to go out in the wilderness solo with your camera 
Describe Hudson Bay, because I don't even know how the perspective changes on the map at different latitudes or whatever, but it is big. It's greenland size big. It is enormous. I mean, it, they call it Hudson Bay, but really it's a vast inland sea. It's 600 miles north to south, up to 400 miles across, and it's frozen half of the year, and there's not a tree or a hill in half a thousand miles in any direction not to stop the wind. and not a hill to stop the wind. It is Whoa. deadly flat. And then you were there in the summer, but apparently if you go far enough north, you eventually hit ice. Exactly. And I mean, then when you hit ice, you start looking for polar bears. Exactly. I mean, you'll see bears along the shore, and a lot of my pictures are sort of bears on rock or bears swimming from well, one... Well, it's o- barren territory for bear <laughs> shooting, I think. I mean, it's just... Looking at the photographs in there, it's... The sky is big. It is... And the sea is endless. Overwhelming. I mean, it's really... And you're little in that boat. Tiny boat. Tiny boat. You read that you were inspired by other historic sailors on Hudson Bay. What sort of uh, historic action was there in that part of uh, Canada, you know, in the last centuries? You know, the earliest explorers just came to terrible ends up there. Henry Hudson, the guy who the bay is named after, was actually set adrift by mutineers. You know, it was a wretched way to die, but at least he got the bay named after him. That, that was the end of him. They don't know where he ended no, up. No, they never, they never they just found a settlement. They left him there. They set them adrift. So you thought, what a cool place to go for a summer vacation. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so tell us about this boat. Because it's, I mean, I grew up on boats, and 22 feet is, that's a little runabout. I found these boats more by luck than research. They were just sturdy cabin cruisers built of fiberglass right up north in Bellingham, Washington. To me, it seemed like the VW van, like the camper bus of boats. Really? Okay. It was just big enough for... So big enough for, uh, uh, you've got to get out of the weather. Is it just one motor? I had two Honda 40-horse outboards, okay. so it didn't go fast. Two. But you could it, have two. I definitely wanted to have a backup. I was always worried that something was going to go wrong, and it usually did. And the name of the boat? Was Seasick. Everybody who buys one of, the, one of these boats <laughs> seems to think the C stands for clever and names them like Sea Wolf and Sea Song, oh, okay. and I bought Sea Sick. And you said you learned the hard way how a boat can be a hole in the water where you put your money. Absolutely. I, I kept every winter, I would sort of think about what went wrong and what I could improve and would be online buying a new chart plotter, a new a backup depth sounder, anything I could think of I was bringing along. In Hudson Bay, are there nice days or is it, or can it be kind of brutal wintry cold? There were some nice days. Uh-huh. Like I, I could probably wouldn't run out of fingers counting them up mm-hmm. where it was T-shirt weather and okay. bucolic. And the rest of the time it was howling and stormy and freezing. So you left your wife for the summer for what, three or four years in a row? And you went over there, and you've got your boat heading north for polar bears. Tell us about, uh, you, you know, refueling and the practicalities of this, getting provisions. I, my image is there's just a few little Inuit settlements and uh, the skulls of wild animals sitting on the mainland, you know. You pretty much nailed it. There's just a half a dozen villages all along the West Coast scattered across 600 miles. And I always had to be aware of how much fuel I had and how much gas I had left. You know, it'd be very embarrassing to have to to start paddling the last few miles in. So I always kept an eye on the fuel level. And any time I came to one of the villages, that was my first order of business, was looking for the gas station and refilling. That was like a constant worry. And I was just always kind of thinking, like, how much longer can I go? Because you're not sailing. You're motoring. I'm motoring. And there's no sail. Run, there's no—when you're out of—you don't want to be m- rowing. 
<laughs> in a 22-foot seasick boat. Photographer Paul Souders has taken some amazing photographs around the world. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, he's telling us what he encountered on a rather risky expedition up the western shore of Hudson Bay to photograph polar bears in the wild. His book, Arctic Solitaire, is published by Mountaineers Books. You'll find photos Paul took on his Hudson Bay adventure online at arcticsolitaire.com. Okay, now it's all about polar bears. What is it about polar bears? You call them the the top of the food chain, a special creature. What's the intrigue here for a photographer? Well, I just think polar bears are, they are like this iconic species. They really, if you think about the North, it's the one animal that everybody gravitates to. They're smart. They're cool animals. They're gorgeous to look at. For me, at least, I really find it compelling to be out among predators, among an animal. Because you're top of the food chain also. I'm second. I'm definitely not the you're top under, of the I'm, you're, you're I'm number two at best. Well, that's too bad because I'm top of the food chain. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm looking at this guy here. This, this, you're a photographer and uh, the photograph on the cover of your book, Arctic Solitaire. One thing, whenever I look at these, you know, I, I've talked to other photographers who are all about, you know, polar bears. You look into the eyes of that polar bear, and it's like there's another world there in, from his perspective. And this is our world connecting with their world. And he's usually sitting on the top of a hunk of ice that's melting. Absolutely. I mean, there is an intelligence and a soulfulness there. Soulfulness, that, that's it, yeah. That really appealed to me. You know, I went up there thinking that maybe I could somehow capture some of that spirit in my pictures. I don't know if I did or I didn't, but... Is this like the elusive dream, or do you do you pretty routinely see polar bears when you're out there in the right spot looking for them? It took a lot of looking. I mean, finding a white bear on an endless sea of white ice what, took a lot of patience and determination and hour after hour. You're there for 100 days, and your day is really just sitting there in your little seasick boat looking, scanning the ice for something white. Absolutely. I had hour after and then, hour. And then you see him and you duck you some close and he decides to lope away. Most of the time I have a, lo- I have a lot of pictures of the south end of northbound bears. <laughs> you also saw a few other animals, I would imagine. You got some great shots of uh, walruses and sea creatures. Exactly. I mean, there's, you know, there's, it's a big open space. Whenever we, I encountered ice, I could almost always count on there being seals or walrus, something, hmm. you know, just hauling out of that really icy cold water and sunning themselves or at least taking a break and resting on the, on the ice. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is photographer Paul Souders. And Paul documents his summer sail up Hudson Bay in his book Arctic Solitaire, A Boat, A Bay, and the Quest for the Perfect Bear. Paul's website is worldphoto.com, and that's photo with an F, worldphoto.com. Paul, you write about how you had uh, nightly uh, conversations with your wife on the uh, uh, satellite phone and so on, and I'm just looking at the excitement in your face as you tell your story here, and your wife just must have thought, Paul, you know, you want to be alone on a little boat for day after day in the north end of Hudson Bay looking for bears. I mean... What's the joy? Take us there. Try to let us know what it's like there on, on a great day for you. Well, a great day up on the bay or any kind of any time I'm out in the wild. Because you didn't just do this once. You did it for four summers in a row. I, I went up for four summers, and it was immersive. Okay. I mean, it just kind of, it just how I would wake up on the boat and the sun would be shining in, and I just knew that, like, today was going to be the day, even though it's never that day. You kind of pump yourself up and have some coffee and some oatmeal and pull up the anchor and head out. 
to start looking all around with the binoculars. And if I see a bear, then the trick is not to frighten it. Yeah. I mean, not, oh, yeah. not to stress the animal. Do you turn the motor off? I turn the motor off. And actually, I almost always set out in my little Zodiac, the little oh, okay. inflatable boat, because yeah. it's much less threatening. It's mm-hmm. lower to the water. Right. So I would just run on a parallel, a slow parallel course to see if he'd get curious. Okay. So he actually, he's aware of you. And the question is, does he want to come over and meet me? Exactly. Did and you have something to protect yourself if he wanted to do more than meet you? I had to use my, I just had to be really aware. I did bring... Did you have um, a gun? I brought, um, it's a little pen-sized flare launcher that launches um, noisemaker shells. And I did also have a 12-gauge that I had bear banger shells, they're called. I had those uh-huh. in there. But in the boat, I never had to do that at all. So you had to make a lot of decisions. I, I would think that you've got storms to deal with. You've got natural phenoms. You talked about tidal bores. What's a situation you got yourself into and you wish you would have done it a little differently? The weather almost always scared me more than the bears did. I mean, I was just a sitting duck out there. There were, you know, there's no harbor. There's no nice marina to go to. I just had to find a place where I could, a little cove where I could drop anchor and shelter from any storms that were coming. And I relied on my wife, Janet. Every night we would, um, we'd talk about the weather first. Right. And then I'd get to talk. So she'd say you're, she knows where you are. This is cool. High tech kind of communication and she can uh, help you steer around storms or, or be ready for storms. Exactly. Was there a fatigue thing or was there a fear thing? You're alone. When were you really afraid? There were always gradations of fear. I think there was always an awareness of how far I was from any help. That would be the major thing. Something goes wrong. If you got help nearby, you're probably going to be okay. But something not desperate could go wrong. But if you got no help, it can become desperate. I prided myself on kind of thinking through what could go wrong and trying to be ready for it. But there were times when things just snowballed out of control. There was one time huge pack ice came in, was coming in from the north, and I was kind of watching it, but I wasn't keeping an eye on the other direction. And it actually, I got pinched in. You could get engulfed in moving ice tables. I was closed off completely. Does that squeeze the boat out of the water? I didn't want to find out. Because if that happened, it... I guess you've got outboard motors, right? So you could pull the motors up and not it wouldn't mess up your propellers. Um, I didn't want to find out. I actually, right. I before I got caught, because if I did, then you're just, I could get crushed. Yep. The boat could be crushed by the ice. And so, then right. your little Zodiac would be, you'd be in a little lifeboat. Exactly. And I didn't, I, that just would be embarrassing. You so, also, you talked about getting stuck in the ice. You wrote, quote, I felt like there was a target on my back. And that was anticipating changing weather conditions. Suddenly you'd be confronted by a, a wall of ice or an approaching storm. Give us a sense of, of that anxiety that that might cause. Every day I had to worry about, could I keep the boat safe? Could I make sure, you know, find some place to anchor that night? So I was always kind of watching the ice and what direction it was coming from, trying to keep an eye on the wind and always worried that I was going to get a big east wind coming in and blowing from 400 miles across the That's bay. That's right. In east, you were on the west side. So blowing across, it's like an ocean wave coming at you. Exactly. It's huge yeah. storms. And there were a couple of times when big systems came in and I sat hunkered behind just little crescents of rock, hoping that, you know, the waves wouldn't break over that. And I, I was stuck once for four days riding out a gale in just a little cove that was probably 150 yards long or wide. So it would give you a little shelter. I had shelter from the breaking seas, but... Could you drop the hook and be solid that you could sleep at night without it dragging? That was always the big scare. Yeah. I mean, any time that 
it was blowing 25, 30, 35. Hard to sleep soundly because you might wake up on the shore. Exactly. I, I yeah. spent a lot of nights just sitting in my captain's chair staring at the GPS, kind of watching the, yeah. the arc as we went, got, were blown back and forth. Wonderful summer vacation. Wonderful <laughs> summer vacation. And I, you, you had some encounters with the uh, Inuits, the, the local indigenous people. What, what is that community like and what did they think when they saw you coming in? I mean, I would imagine they'd wonder what you're up to. Exactly. I mean, there was a lot of curiosity because they just don't get outsiders coming in in their own boat, just kind of motoring in out of the blue. They just don't see that. It's They're so far away from any other... There's no tourism there. There's very little tourism. It would take a very hardy sort. And so you go into one of these towns and it's just like you're like a trapper or something like that. A little bit. I mean, they're modern places. They're, right. you know, they have they have modern schools. They have the... They're RC- part of Canada, so they get their support from the government, even if they're in the far reaches. Exactly. They have actually have really good infrastructure up there right. and, and a lot of investment. Anytime I was coming close to a village, I'd, it always seemed like I'd run into a skiff full of hunters. They were curious, like, what is this? This is a new boat. They don't recognize me. A skiff full me. of Inuit hunters. Exactly. Meaning a little boat of guys that were out hunting? Yep. There's like these... 17, 22-foot aluminum skiffs with a right. big 150 horsepower outboard And what the were they hunting? They were hunting seal, mm-hmm. narwhal, walrus. And that was their livelihood. Exactly. It's a, it's a traditional subsistence culture uh-huh. up there using some modern technology. Photographer Paul Souders shows us how a small but capable boat can take you on the wildest of adventures in his book Arctic Solitaire, A Boat, A Bay, and the Quest for the Perfect Bear. He includes photographs of polar bears and icebergs from his adventures in the Canadian Arctic, Labrador, and Greenland on his website, worldphoto.com. And photo is spelled F-O-T-O. The idea, the goal, was to grab the best polar bear photograph ever. Describe your most rewarding moment as a photographer. Like you said, I went up there looking to take the best polar bear picture that had ever been shot. And I don't know that I did that, but I got certainly the best picture I've ever shot in 35 years of trying. One of the earliest polar bears I saw was swimming in the bay, and I saw her go under an iceberg and pop her head up to breathe in a little hole. And I managed to get the Zodiac around and hold the camera out on a pole so I wasn't right on top of her, and she submerged. And I thought the picture would be when she came up for a breath. So I started shooting ahead of time just to try to get focus. And she came up and breathed and went down and disappeared and swam away. I was shooting blind. I couldn't see what I was, what the camera was seeing. And when I finally had a chance to look at the frames, there was just this one magical image of the bear peering up from under the ice at me. So she was submerged, and the setting midnight sun is off oh. to the west, and the sky is filled actually with smoke from forest fires to the south. It is a gift. It is like this perfect gem that... Perfect storm of circumstances. Exactly. Paul Souders, thanks for chasing your dream and judging by the photographs in your book, Reaching It. Best wishes in your future travels. Thanks for writing Arctic Solitaire. Thank you, Rick. Some people call James Joyce's epic novel Ulysses one of the greatest works of modern literature. Others say it's probably the hardest book they've ever tried to read. Up next, we hear how fans in Dublin like to recreate scenes from the book on the June date they call Bloomsday. It's a particularly big deal this year as it's the centennial of when Ulysses was first published. 
Joe Darcy takes us for a walk around Dublin next on Travel with Rick Steves. It can be a grand tour indeed when you have a good companion to take you around the streets of Dublin. The creative tradition of Irish literary greats like Beckett, Yeats, Joyce and Shaw continue on in its youthful arts and music scene to this day. And there's a lot of compelling history at your feet as well. From its 13th century Dublin castle to its role as the second city of the British Empire. Dublin streets have known feast and famine, and they bore witness to the bloody struggle for Irish independence. On a lighter note, each year the city commemorates June 16th as Bloomsday. That's the day the streets of Dublin become the haunt of James Joyce fans as they painstakingly recreate the details of that day, lived by his character Leopold Bloom in Ulysses. Joe Darcy specializes in walking tours of his hometown, and he joins us now for insider tips for seeing the best of Dublin. Joe, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So Dublin was, at one time, the number two city in the British Empire. It certainly was, particularly in the 18th century. In the Um, 1700s, it really was a... 1700s. There's a period of architecture known as Georgian architecture, and Dublin went through a big, big building boom in the 18th century, and Dublin's prosperous Protestant class. They had a huge amount of money and they built a huge amount of buildings. So when we see the great Georgian architecture, uh, Georgian is British for neoclassical. Mm. When you go to Dublin, that was mostly Protestant bigwigs in Dublin representing the British throne. Yes, certainly. The elites of the official religion in Ireland was Protestantism, although the vast majority of people were Catholic. We have this phrase called beyond the pale. Beyond the pale, yeah. It relates to Dublin. Um, when the Anglo-Normans, the precursors to the English, when they arrived and captured the city of Dublin in 1167, 1169, beg your pardon, and Dublin became the centre of the English colony of Ireland. In a very short period, they built castles in and around Dublin up to 30 miles north, 30 miles, 40 miles south and 10, 12 miles to the, to the west. And that became known as the Pale uh, P-A-L-E. So beyond the pale. And beyond the pale was outside the English control. So good luck to you if you venture beyond the beyond pale. The, absolutely. Okay, let's go back with our walk through Dublin now. And to me, the, the center of Dublin would be O'Connell Bridge. Mm-hmm. And uh, you stand on O'Connell Bridge, and what are we going to see? You're the guide. Tell us about the river. Tell us about what we're looking at. When you're standing on O'Connell Bridge, you're standing on the, the River Liffey, which is flowing underneath you. The River Liffey flows in an east-west direction, almost perfectly east-west through the city of Dublin. So it divides Dublin beautifully up into the north side and south side. The north side of Dublin in the early Georgian period was the place where the aristocracy built their houses. And then in around the middle of the 18th century, a man named James Fitzgerald built his house, now called Leinster House, on the south side of the city. And from the time he built his house there, all the, the rich people started to build their houses on the south on side. The south. Okay. And the north side kind of got deserted from the, by the rich people and started to be populated by poorer people. There's a, a working class edge to it. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And in, in years gone by, when Dublin's population was centred in the city, Dublin's population had now spread out into suburbs. But in years gone by, there was a big population living in Dublin city centre. And you were defined by which side of the river you were born on. What's the joke? The northsiders were called uh, the accused. The accused and the south side is where your honour. Your honour. Is that much of yeah. a gap? It's not so much now, but no. when I was growing up... It's a pretty rough, rough no. and tumble district, I bet. When yeah, north side is where considered rough, uh, less, or sorry, more criminally inclined. A favourite joke was, uh, years ago, was why would a south side girl, that's just the well-off girl, why would she go out with a north sider boy to get her handbag back? I want my handbag back. 
just beyond the next bridge then, down from O'Connell Bridge, uh-huh. is a, a wonderful memorial of uh, six or seven figures. They are very tall figures, very tall, skinny figures. And I think what the sculpture has made them tall is to accentuate how thin they were. Ireland has had a long and troubled history, but without a doubt, the greatest disaster to happen to Ireland was the famine of 1846-1847. Isn't the population of Ireland today even less than it was before the Great Potato Famine? Oh, it's still much less than it was. Like in a 18... third of the population yeah. or something? There's a census of Ireland in 1841, and the population of Ireland was 8 million people. The population of Ireland in the 1901 census, which is the next one we have records for, because a lot of records were destroyed, was less than 4 million people. So half. Population halved in, in a short period. There's no other European country, no other Western country, I think, has a population demograph like that, where population is less than it was 150 years ago. And that's part of the impact Ireland has had on the United States. Hmm. There are more Irish people in the United States today than, than in Ireland. That's very true, yeah. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Joe Darcy, and he's a, a tour guide in Dublin, and we're taking a walk through Dublin. And, uh, Joe, if we want to walk from O'Connell Bridge up O'Connell Street, we see a lot of statues that just really tell the story of Irish history. Who are some of the characters we'll meet along that uh, O'Connell Street? Well, the first, the first statue you'll see, it's right beside O'Connell Bridge, is the statue of Daniel O'Connell. He's one of my great heroes of Ireland. Most of the heroes of Ireland are soldiers who have died fighting for Ireland, yeah. But Daniel O'Connell is one of my great heroes because he lived for Ireland. He was a politician in the early 19th century who, through peaceful means and through organising the Catholics of Ireland into a major sort of bloc. They didn't have any votes in Ireland. Catholics did not have the vote. But he organised a series of mass monster meetings. So monster meetings. Yeah. Tens of thousands of people. This be- was Before they had amplified uh, voice you know, speakers. Yeah, and this was very much like the Velvet Revolution that went on in Eastern European countries at the yeah. fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah. He, Daniel O'Connell was doing this in the 1820s. You'd also come upon the general post office. And, and this is, uh, to a lot of people, they go, well, it's the post office, but this is near and dear to the Irish soul. The general post office is one of the most iconic buildings, not just in Dublin, but in Ireland. Why so? Um, well, Ireland has, has been a colony of England for a long, long time, 700 years. There's been many, many rebellions right throughout that time. And the most iconic of all the rebellions was the rebellion of 1916, which took place mostly in Dublin. On the morning of Easter Monday in 1916, a small group of Irish rebels captured the GPO, the General Post Office, and declared an Irish independent republic. The rebellion was doomed to failure in terms of military because they didn't have any numbers. They were easily going to get beaten. But what their intention was and what they succeeded in doing was to reinvigorate the demand by Irish people for their own nationhood again. They had almost no chance of winning, but oh, they, they had stoked the spirit oh, of the It's not Irish just people. almost no chance. They had zero so chance of winning. So this was worse than the Alamo in America, probably. <laughs> Actually, very much like the Alamo. It seems yeah. like an Alamo. I, we could I, relate to the Alamo. Yeah, they had no hope of victory either. Yeah, now, yeah. nearby, there used to be a statue of the great British hero, Lord Nelson. Lord Nelson's column, Nelson's pillar it was called, I think it was built around 1820 or something like that. You could walk up Nelson's Pillar in an internal stairway. I remember doing uh-huh. it as a child for three uh-huh. pence, which was a lot of money. I could buy a lot of toffees for three pence. <laughs> but I did it once. And in 1966, on the 50th anniversary of the 1960 rebellion... So that's 50 years after the, 50 years, uh, yeah. the General Post Office. The Irish Republican time. Army put a bomb in the middle of Nelson's Pillar and knocked down from about halfway down, yeah. Blew it up. Blew it up, yeah. What stands there today? It was replaced by a statue of the river goddess. The goddess of the river Liffey, her name was Anna Livia. 
I loved Anna Livia's statue. She was a reclining figure. She must have been about 18, 20 foot long, surrounded by a fountain of water. And most Dublin people loved her there. Quite often people would put soap washing up liquid into the fountain and she'd be surrounded by suds. And she was known affectionately as the floozy in the jacuzzi. <laughs> when, the, when the year 2000 was coming around, a lot of European cities, I don't know about American cities, a lot of European cities were building, doing projects to commemorate the, the, the new millennium. Right. So there was a lot of designs put in for a new monument on the site of the former Nelson's Pillar. The winning project was a 110 metre high metal spire. It's called the Monument of Light. And this um, is just like a stainless steel spike. Stainless steel it's, it's, spike. Most people know it as the spike. It's just like a big flagpole without yeah. a flag on it. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Any other nicknames? It's the spire, it's the needle. The stiletto in the ghetto? The stiletto in the ghetto is its most popular nickname, yeah. Uh, just across the road from the stiletto in the ghetto is a statue of James Joyce on a street called North Earl Street. Uh-huh. And he's a typical James Joyce pose. He has his walking stick out and he's known as the Dickwood Stick. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Joe Darcy. We're walking through Dublin. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Cheryl's calling in from Peachtree City in Georgia. Cheryl, thanks for your call. Hello. Hi. So I'm going to be visiting Dublin on a cruise, and I'm going to have a limited amount of time. We're just going to be there for about 12 hours. So I was wondering if you could tell me some of the things that I should, I can't miss during that time and maybe something that's off the beaten path. Uh, well, one of the things, hi, it's Joe here. One of the things that you, you shouldn't miss is the Book of Kells, which is not the oldest manuscript book made in Ireland, but the, the most important. It's famous for the calligraphy and the incredible artwork that's in it. That's on permanent display in Trinity College, right in the heart of Dublin. My advice would be, if you're on a cruise ship, there's probably going to be lots of buses visiting Trinity College. They normally visit in the morning hours. So don't go there in the morning if you're going there on your own. Arguably the most beautiful medieval art from the Dark Ages in Europe, the uh, illuminated manuscripts on the Book of Kells. Absolutely, yeah. A reminder that Ireland was a real yeah. bright spot in Europe when, when the rest of Europe was in what mm. we call the Dark Ages. So as well as Trinity College, I would say that do that in late afternoon. But before that, perhaps go up, take a walk up to Dublin Castle, the grounds of Dublin Castle. A lot of people get disappointed when they see Dublin Castle because they're expecting the medieval castle. But Dublin Castle was destroyed by an accidental fire towards the end of the 17th century. And it's a French style building now, but it's a magnificent building. But it's it has a centre of government, really. It's a cent- it was the centre of government of the British, co- of the right. colony of Ireland, yeah. Now, one thing I'd recommend, uh, Cheryl, is to just take advantage of all the wonderful guides in Dublin. I mean, Joe's one of them, but there's lots of good guides that give walking, historic walking tours. They take an hour and a half or so, and students do it at Trinity College, and then uh, guides meet you at different uh, meeting points around Dublin, and they'll give you a a good two-hour historical walk. Absolutely, yeah. Have fun, Cheryl, on your trip. Thank you very much. You bet. And Stephen's calling in from Cudahy in Wisconsin. Stephen, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. In 2013, my wife and I were in Dublin, and we happened to be there for Bloomsday, June 16th, and we took a couple of guided James Joyce walks. We went to Davy Burns Pub for lunch. We had the traditional gorgonzola cheese sandwich and a glass of burgundy, and for anybody who has any interest in Dublin or Irish literature, this should be a pilgrimage. Joe just gave you a thumbs up that doesn't show very well on the radio, but he's all if, for what you just said. If, if you were having a gorgonzola cheese sandwich in Davy Burns on Bloomsday 2013, I might have been there at the same time. <laughs> I, I, was, I was the guy dressed in, well, there was thousands of people dressed, but I had a lovely bowler hat on. I, ha, I have my Bloomsday outfit, and I, I sincerely hope 
if you did Davy Burns on your pilgrimage that you went to a place called Swenny's. Swenny's Pharmacy is uh, on Lincoln Place in Dublin and that's one of my favourite places in Dublin. And if you're looking for something different to do in Dublin, visit Swenny's Pharmacy, not just on Bloomsday. Now, what's so good about this pharmacy? Swenny's Pharmacy was a, a pharmacy built in 1845, 1850. Um, so it's a Victorian pharmacy and the pharmacy has been preserved. One of my colleagues in Swenny's, I, I say one of my colleagues in Swenny's because I'm a director of FW Swenny Company Limited, which is a charity which looks after the shop. It's a preserved Victorian pharmacy, but what makes it on the Joyce Trail is in Chapter 5 of James Joyce's Ulysses classic book about Dublin on the 16th of June 1904. Leopold Bloom, around 10.30 in the morning, goes into Swenny's Pharmacy. And while he's in Swenny's Pharmacy, he's looking around, he's describing the bottles and the jars on the shelves, probably still there today. It's just an incredibly preserved building. And while he's there, Leopold Bloom buys a bar of lemon soap. So every visitor who visits us on Bloomsday particularly, they buy the bar of soap. It's not just on Bloomsday. Swenny's Pharmacy is open every day. It's a little gem in Dublin. It only holds about 20 people if they're all seated in there. Okay. But we sit people in there and we read James Joyce out aloud. It's Beautiful. on every day between one o'clock and two o'clock, there's a story read or a part of a book. But if you go in there with a group of people outside those hours, they read a story for you anyway. So now for those of us who are not uh, that literate to have read Ulysses, what is Bloomsday? Bloomsday is the 16th of June. James Joyce's most famous novel is Ulysses, which is about one day in Dublin. And the day he chose was the 16th of June, 1904, which is the day that he went out with a girl named Nora Barnacle for the first time. That was their first date. They eventually eloped a few months later. So the city celebrates James Joyce and his literary heritage every June 16th. Every June 16th is now known as Bloomsday and we dress up in the clothes of the period and we follow the roots of both Leopold Bloom and a guy named Stephen Dedalus as they're walking backwards and forwards across Dublin on the 16th of June well, 1904. Stephen, uh, w- would you recommend being in Dublin on, on Bloomsday? I would and my wife and I are going to be there again this year for Bloomsday and we hope we can meet Joe. And what do you look forward to doing other than meeting Joe on Bloomsday? There's all kinds of festivities. There's concerts, there's walks, there's just hanging out in the pubs. So the whole city is alive. Joe, what are some, a couple of other favorite uh, hidden treats in Dublin that we might, we might want to be aware of? The Marsh Library is Ireland's oldest public library. It's a 300-year-old library right beside St. Patrick's Cathedral. So if you're a tourist in Dublin, the likelihood is you're going to go along to St. Patrick's Cathedral right. at some stage. And just a little bit further on, I'm talking 50, 60 yards, is a Marsh Library. And the library has been preserved as it was built 300 years ago. So a 300-year-old library. Those are wonderful yeah. all over Europe when you find them. And, and what's one more? Just a little bit outside Dublin city centre is a place called the Casino in Marino. It is an incredibly unique work of Georgian architecture from the late 18th century. It is a magnificent building. On the outside, it looks like a Grecian temple hmm. with huge windows, a massive front door, and it looks for all the world like it's going to be one room, one big hall inside. And this would have been back from the days when Ireland was not chafing at British rule, but at least Dublin was embracing it and, and benefiting oh, from it, if du- you were a du- local Dublin elite. was embracing it. There was a man named James Caulfield who, yeah. was, uh, who had inherited a large fortune he went off on a grand tour of Europe when he was 20 years of age and he came back with wonderful ideas of bringing classic architecture and classic art to Dublin and he built the Casino in Marino. Stephen, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. You bet. Tour guide Joe Darcy is taking us for a Bloomsday Centennial Walk around Dublin on Travel with Rick Steves. 
It's a pre-pandemic interview from before Joe retired from the board of Sweeney's Pharmacy. That's one of the must-see literary stops along the route taken by Leopold Bloom on June 16th in James Joyce's classic novel, Ulysses. We have contact information for Joe in this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. And uh, Joe, let's just finish with Temple Bar because that's just sort of the trendy, tacky, touristy, full of hen parties and stag parties, uh, beer drinking zone, but you can't miss it when you're in Dublin. How can we approach and enjoy Temple Bar? Well, you should walk through Temple Bar during the day because the cobble streets that you're walking on are 17th century streetscape that you're walking on. Yes, it is a little bit tacky. It's a bit of a tourist trap, but it's extremely colourful. And there's also the music pub walk and the literary pub crawl. Oh, yeah. From there. yeah. And they're wonderful experiences because you mm. go from pub to pub learning about the music or the literature, depending yeah. on your taste. And Temple Bar in Dublin was a thriving area in the 18th century. And it was full of, uh, as well as taverns and bars, it was full of theatres, including one called the Smock Alley Theatre, which has been restored now. And that was the first theatre to be built in the British Isles after the restoration of the monarchy in Britain in the mid-17th century. So much history. Mm, so much. Now, when people go to Ireland, they always, uh, when you order a beer, you get a Guinness. Yeah, if you say, can I have a pint, please, then the barman assumes you mean a pint of Guinness. That's in Dublin, now. In Dublin, of course. Yeah, now, if you want the most scenic pint of Guinness. Uh, they say it doesn't travel very well, and uh, if you want to get it right from the birthplace with oh, a good view, where would you go? The Guinness Storehouse, yeah. It gets very, very crowded during the summer months, mm-hmm. and maybe to go along towards the end of the day. But you have, when you go through the Guinness Museum, but you finish up on the bar at the top of the store. The Gravity store, Bar. So it's called the Gravity Bar, and it has a wonderful view this around is like the best almost view like 360. The oh, best yeah. view yeah. in the city, I think. And Absolutely. you got a nice beer there, and everybody's in a good mood. And if, if you're kind of a person that enjoys a brewery tour, it's a nice yes. way to cap it off. <laughs> so, Joe, let's just finish. We've walked all around town. We had our, our Guinness up on top of the Gravity Bar. Take us to one last stop. In the late afternoon or early evening, Grafton Street is uh, a shopping street on the, the south side of the city. It's been a pedestrian street since the 1980s. It feels like a pedestrian shopping mall. It's, it's a pedestrian shopping mall, place, yeah. Yeah. But it's, It has a huge, large department stores, but it has a lot of small shops as well. And what Grafton Street is most famous for is for the street entertainment. We refer to street entertainers as buskers and the art of busking, B-U-S-K-I-N-G. Yeah. Sometimes my American visitors don't know that word. You know? I love that word, yeah. busking. busking. And there's yeah. great buskers on yeah. Grafton Street. Yeah. And what I found, unlike anywhere else, is, of course, you've got street musicians, but you also have street poets. Street poets as well, yeah. Great opportunity to feel the pulse of Dublin. Yes. Joe Darcy, thanks so much for your peek at a, at a beautiful city. Thank you. We'll see you there. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Casmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to KLCC in Eugene, Oregon, for studio help this week. There's more at ricksteves.com slash radio. Enjoy Europe on a Rick Steves bus tour. Our bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and dozens of exciting itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com.